Ladies and gentlemen, you are most welcome here at Union Theological Seminary on behalf of the Friends of the Burke Library, whom I have the honor of chairing. I'd like to greet you um, and to introduce our auspicious director, John Weaver, who's uh, here this evening and will answer any questions you may have about the library. And I think some of you are new, so please feel free. Right, John? Uh, and I hope you've all signed the guest book. And I hope you've all turned off your cell phones. Um, if not, now would be a good time to do that. And our speaker tonight, Dr. Brian Mahan, comes to us after serving as director of the program in religious education at Candler School of Theology in, in Atlanta and a former faculty member of the Graduate Division of Religion at Emory. Okay, anybody else? <laughs> Where, of course, he knew our director, uh, John Weaver, who also came to us from that part of the woods. Brian holds a doctorate from the University of Chicago and is the author of two books dealing with Christian ethics and vocations. He's been a scholar in residence at the Burke Library for this past semester while working on his new book on the topic about which he will be telling us in a minute. He has warned us to watch out for something bizarre in the course of his lecture, so no fear of falling asleep. When I looked for information about William James, I found him referred to as both a philosopher and a psychologist, perhaps the first American psychologist with that name. But nothing in his biography indicated, at least to me, a pastoral vocation. Perhaps Brian will help us rethink that tonight. So please welcome Brian Mahan. Thank you, Mim, um, for the introduction. And uh, congratulations are also in order, because Mim has been appointed a, to the Board of Trustees here. Congratulations for that. Even with my brief conversations with Mim, I can see that that was a very good idea. Um, and thanks to John Weaver. Where are you, John? Eating over there, good. Um, uh, well, thanks for appointing me uh, this year, and, and it's been great to be back in touch. Uh, I first met John Weaver when he walked into the first doctoral seminar I ever taught at Emory University, and it was in, you know, it's kind of this practical theology, pastoral theology stuff, and he was a New Testament scholar, so I felt that this was just the greatest thing, that we don't usually uh, draw those folks. Uh, but he also was involved in the very last seminar, doctoral seminar I taught at Emory, uh, this time as a teacher. And uh, he came into our class, it was a class on Thomas Merton, and uh, told us about the Merton collection, um, lectured for a little while, gave an overview, uh, promised the students he'd help with research, and provided lunch. So uh, he's always been this way. Um, uh, John and Mim both asked me to, to talk just for a moment before the lecture um, about being at Burke this year. And um, as, as Mim said, I'm writing on William James. So I, I haven't been using the ar archives, I mean the, the tremendous archives that we have here. I, 
But I can tell you this, I was a little surprised. I thought I'd be down at 116th getting my books on philosophy, but the collection is excellent in philosophy. The musty old books from the 19th century were all there, and all the newest interpretations were there. And I think I, I was down there only once at, at 116th. So, but but um, this gives me an opportunity to, to, to say something else, which is a little, I think, confessional uh, about the value of being scholar in residence this year. Um, uh, Kim took a job, my wife Kim, at... Um, Marymount of New York uh, last year. And I left my job at Emory. It was about time, I felt. But I didn't quite know what it was like to be retired or semi-retired. It was a little more, traumatic's too strong, but almost. And uh, I, I speak of my ironic isolation on the Upper West Side uh, because of all the crowds, and yet I... There were days, I remember one in particular, where all I did was order the tuna salad at Manhattan Diner at 77th and Broadway. That was my entire conversation for that day. So archives are great, research is great, conversation with other people who are interested in the things that you're interested in is just spectacular. And, and um, John, several conversations with you. Uh, Michael Bodie has been really helpful, and we, I just really enjoy exchanging pleasantries with him. Uh, Joe Lemlin, you know, we, who, who could speak philosophy. We had lots of, you know, one of those deals where you talk to someone in the hall, but it goes on for 20 minutes. You, you make him believe you're on your way someplace, but you're really not. Um, and Heather Wise, who's a student at Union, who's doing her own writing project, and we had a wonderful conversation about what she was up to. So, But, you know, here's the second one that's a little more embarrassing. I didn't quite realize what it meant to be without credentials and title. Uh, even filling out forms at the doctor's office. And this year I was able to go, scholar in residence, <laughs> Columbia, and people would treat you just a little differently. And I uh, I'm a little sad about that, but um, but a library card, um, a place to work, a title. So these are the things about the Burke community to me that were really essential and wonderful and life-giving. Thank you so much. Um, and, and there's one other thing I have to say that might sound ironic, and I don't mean it to be. I, I'm very happy that I'm not being paid. Um, <laughs> my mother, when... She was dying. A couple of months before she was dying, she said, Brian, can I tell you something, and, and I hope you won't be offended? Oh. Uh, okay. Um, I feel you've always had a kind of genius for not making money. <laughs> and, and so John, John's helped us out. I'm living the legacy. Um, and a final note. Um, I told both him and John to expect something out of the ordinary, that there was going to be a twist to this whole thing tonight. And uh, I was withholding important information. Uh, that, that information is I have been slogging my way through an inner ear infection, which causes me to list to the right usually, but occasionally to the left. I don't really understand. And it causes dizziness, and it causes the pages to swim and 
alternate. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? I have the lecture. I wrote it a month ago. Um, but I really can't read it. Um, so I did a dry run. Uh, Kim was horrified at what she saw. Uh, and I think uh, imaged herself sitting through that lecture um, painfully uh, and said to me, um, would you like me to read it for you? Uh, Kim is a public speaker. She wrote a book based, called Zen for Christians based on her workshops and lectures. And I said, yes. I would like to say it reluctantly, but it wasn't the least bit reluctantly. It's with <laughs> great relief. So I'm going to listen to my own lecture, <laughs> and, and then I'll come back up for what I hope is a discussion, uh, criticisms, comments, uh, questions. And we have rehearsed this. We, we, I, I, uh, these things don't clear up very quickly. So I knew on Monday when we spoke that this was going to be the case. But anyway, Kimmy, thank you so much. <laughs> Hello. <clears throat> so I'll be saying I, but that means Brian. <clears throat> A few years ago, I came across the Modern Library's ranking of the 100 greatest nonfiction works in English over the last century. The two books at the very top of this distinguished listing, ranking one and two respectively, were Henry Adams's The Education of Henry Adams and William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience. I was pleased that two Bostonians topped the list, but distressed that they got it backwards. William James should have been first. As a young townie, hoping to embrace the life of the mind without jettisoning my Catholic faith, I had conducted extensive interviews with James and Adams, as well as a number of other prominent New Englanders, looking for guidance on the matter. Adams, it is true, saw no problem in reconciling the two, displaying a near reverence for Catholic art, architecture, and literature, as well as a deep, if nostalgia-tinged, appreciation for the great medieval synthesis forged by St. Thomas Aquinas. What soon became apparent, however, was that while Henry Adams loved Catholicism in the abstract, Catholicism as tamed by museums and encoded in stained glass, the Irish and Italian Catholics the eminent scholar encountered on the streets of Cambridge proved more challenging to his delicate sensibilities. My father, a judge and president of the Cambridge Civic Association, and my mother, the society editor for a small Cambridge weekly, might have passed muster. But my paternal grandparents, both Cantabrigians and Adams's near contemporaries, would not have fared well with him. My grandfather was a janitor in an apartment building packed with Harvard types, my father's phrasing, and my grandmother worked the switchboard at the Commander Hotel, where prominent visitors to Harvard managed to complicate her life without fully registering her existence. My grandparents would have done better with William James. He was, as they were, third-generation Irish-American. More importantly, James had a reputation for mentoring outsiders and favoring the underdog. His critics, often other Harvard faculty, called these men and women cranks and, worse, moral hunchbacks. One colleague paid James this backhanded compliment. 
Few persons are habitually so kind. In consequence, a troop of cranks attended him through life. What outlays of time and money he spent on half-baked philosophers. His judgment was not good. It was corrupted by kindness. There is something else about William James that would have appealed to my grandparents and earned their admiration, his fascination with the lives of the saints. Years after my initial dalliance with high culture Catholicism and now a student at Harvard Divinity School, I discovered William James's classic, The Varieties of Religious Experience, and was profoundly moved by what I read. Nowhere else in James's writings can passages of equal power and beauty be found. Saints, James writes, are like single drops which sparkle in the sun as they are flung far ahead of the advancing edge of a wave crest or of a flood. They show the way and are forerunners. Saints are the tip of the wedge, the clearers of darkness, impregnators of the world, and vivifiers and animators of potentialities of goodness, which, but for them, would lie forever dormant. Far from being anachronistic, the saints are instead ahead of the game. It is the world which is not yet with them. As I read these words in the early 70s, it was Daniel Berrigan, only recently released from prison, who first came to mind, along with Simone Weil, whose mystical activism and neurotic sanctity I found compelling. And it was while paging through Dorothy Day's autobiography, The Long Loneliness, that I learned that she, too, had been inspired by the lives of the saints she encountered within the varieties. It was James's reframing of his famous Moral Equivalent of War essay that most appealed to her imagination and perhaps changed her life. William James writes, Poverty is indeed the strenuous life without brass bands or hysteric popular applause or lies or circumlocutions. And when one sees the way in which wealth-getting enters as an ideal into the very bone and marrow of our generation, one wonders whether the revival of the belief that poverty is a worthy religious vocation may not be the transformation of military courage and the spiritual reform which our time stands most in need of. I think James still has something to teach us on these matters, especially on the formation of individuals for service to the wider world. That is why I'm writing about him. But that is not the only reason. I also wish to counter a school of Jamesian interpretation pioneered by Timothy Leary, who, on the basis of reading less than a full page of the varieties, says that James corrupted many a mind describing the glories of nitrous oxide. Recently, Three philosophers and philosophically inclined theologians have taken it upon themselves to cooperate in fashioning an image of James similar to Leary's, a kind of proto-60s hipster peddling the cheap high of religious experience. I call them the obtuse triangle, intending a kind of lower synthesis between the Vienna Circle and the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> Charles Taylor the most distinguished and least abrasive of the three, says this of James's treatment of religious conversion within the pages of the varieties. Many people are not satisfied with a momentary sense of wow. They want to take it further, and they're looking for ways of doing so. By this, Taylor means that James sees religious experience as an end in itself and neglects to fashion a link between initial conversion experiences and what Taylor expects ought to follow upon them, 
disciplines like prayer and meditation, for example. Taylor is wrong on this count, demonstrably so, but I feel no need to convince you of this. I'd rather just pose a question. How could two readings of the same text be as different as Dorothy Day's and Charles Taylor's readings of the varieties of religious experience? My response to that question, my thesis, is this. We Jamesian cranks read William James as a pastoral philosopher, not only as an academic philosopher. We are, we freely admit, looking for advice, for counsel, perhaps even for spiritual consolation in James's writing. And why not? James himself invites such a reading. In his Will to Believe collection, he writes, thousands of innocent magazine readers lie paralyzed and terrified in the network of shallow negations which the leaders of opinion have thrown over their souls. Similarly, in describing his motives in writing the varieties of religious experience, James says that he wishes to defend against all the prejudices of my class, experience against philosophy as being the real backbone of the world's religious life. I mean prayer, guidance, and all that sort of thing. But when I call attention to James's pastoral sensibility, I am not simply relying on his stated intentions, always an iffy business. I am also pointing to the pedagogical and historical context that conditions both his writing and his teaching, a context that George Santayana colors in unmistakably pastoral tones. Santayana says this, the state of Harvard College had this remarkable effect on the philosophers. It made their sense of social responsibility acute because they were consciously teaching and guiding the community as if they had been clergymen, clergymen without a church. The American historian of philosophy, Bruce Kuklick, backs up Santayana, suggesting that the Harvard philosophers of James's time were encouraged by President Eliot to take responsibility for the moral formation of those placed in their charge. All this is to say that James read his students as carefully as they read his books. In this sense, I mean the sense in which James examines texts for their formative efficacy, as well as their expository adequacy, he exercised a kind of pastoral office. In this way, James bears something of a family resemblance to Max Weber's depiction of pastoral workers in his The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Weber argues that pastoral workers played a central role in the emergence of a new and powerful ethos largely by mediating between the content of the central texts of the church, dogmas mainly, especially the dogma of predestination, and the pastoral needs of the laity, who often found such dogmas onerous. James does something of the same, mediating between the sometimes onerous dogmas issuing from the magisterium of academia, often from philosophers and philosophically inclined scientists, and the needs, aspirations, and yes, biases of the sometimes credulous, sometimes closed-minded lay reader, who more often than not is looking for advice as well as information, for guidance as well as cogent reasoning. All this is not to say that James does not engage the philosophers and theologians on their own terms. He often does. In fact, James's vision for the formation of saints, the vision Dorothy Day and others find so compelling, 
grows out of his more properly philosophical concerns articulated in his Will to Believe essays. James's famous defense of the right to believe is in part a response to philosopher scientist W.K. Clifford's harsh counsel that it is wrong always and everywhere and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. James takes exception to Clifford's contention that the would-be believer is duty-bound to wait upon the evidence before embracing belief even tentatively. James argues that it would be an insane logic that suggests that readers must refrain from belief entirely since, he says, faith in a fact can help create a fact. What James is saying is that were Clifford truly empirical, he would regard tentatively held belief as a kind of hypothesis, generating evidence over time. Scientists, after all, hardly sit around passively waiting for the evidence to arrive on the scene. They rely on hunches, on hints embedded in as yet ambiguous data. That is to say, they formulate hypotheses and test them. Though James returns to this issue within the pages of the varieties of religious experience, his interests there become more doggedly pastoral. James's tone also changes. His formerly polite demeanor falls away from time to time. Theorists who sidestep or demean pastoral considerations are no longer gently chided. They are parodied and sometimes condemned. When I was a boy, James writes, I used to think that a closet naturalist must be the vilest type of wretch under the sun. But surely, the systematic theologians are the closet naturalists of the deity. What is their deduction of metaphysical attributes but a shuffling and matching of pedantic dictionary adjectives? Aloof from morals, aloof from human needs. They have the trail of the serpent over them. Verbality has stepped into the place of vision, professionalism into that of life. Instead of bread, we have a stone. Instead of a fish, a serpent. Having issued his rebuke, James presents a number of extra-philosophical strategies addressing the very concerns he accuses systematic theologians of ignoring. It is important to add, before listing three of these strategies for you, that James's extra-philosophical strategies are not anti-philosophical in character. All three, in fact, extend, in one way or another, the more properly philosophical concerns that preoccupied James as he wrote the Will to Believe essays. You will recall, for instance, that James argued that the best evidence for the truth of a religious belief often followed after belief had been embraced. Early in the varieties, James follows up on that argument by providing criteria to judge belief over time. These criteria, immediate luminousness, moral helpfulness, and philosophical reasonableness are deployed throughout the varieties, albeit sometimes more tacitly than explicitly. The first of James's extra-philosophical or pastoral <coughs> strategies might best be described as a pedagogy for the religiously unmusical. James, it seems to me, wishes to <coughs> awaken readers to their own sometimes repressed capacity for religious experience, or failing that, at least to provide them with a muted sense of the power such experiences might exercise over others. James is not so much trying to persuade the reader of the truth of religious beliefs associated with mystical experience, though he gives that a shot too, 
as he is encouraging readers to simply attend to such experience sympathetically and openly, the way they might approach poetry or music. Poetry and music are alive and significant, James says, only in proportion as they fetch the vague vistas of a life continuous with our own, beckoning and inviting, yet ever eluding our pursuit. James continues, we are alive or dead to the eternal inner message of the arts according as we have kept or lost this mystical susceptibility. For James then, we may well be alive or dead to the eternal inner message of religion to the degree that we are able to retain a similar mystical sensibility. To this end, the case studies of conversion, ranging from Teresa of Avila to Tolstoy to recovering alcoholics on the Bowery, are intended primarily to appeal directly to the reader's own experience in the hope of striking a sympathetic chord. In his second pastoral strategy, let's call it his contra Nietzschean offensive, James recognizes in fashioning a response to Friedrich Nietzsche's The Genealogy of Morals that the challenge posed to the authenticity of religious belief has begun to shift from accusations of irrationality, recall W.K. Clifford's argument, to accusations of the pathology of religious belief. With his notion of resentment, Nietzsche presents the rudiments of a new grammar of motives for evaluating religious belief, or perhaps more accurately, the life of faith. James meets Nietzsche on his own grounds, accepting and extending his grammar of motives in a complex response that distinguishes pathological motivations for ascetic practice from life-giving ones. In doing so, James also manages to anticipate and to some extent preempt Freud's later totalizing identification of the Christian saint with the cultural superego. It is important to add that in this second extra-philosophical strategy, James also goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Nietzsche rhetorically, <clears throat> exhorting rather than merely arguing, knowing that if he engages Nietzsche's marching army of metaphors with the chatty Anglo-Saxonisms he exchanged with Clifford, he would quickly be vanquished. James's third pastoral strategy deploys what amounts to a brilliant quasi-Marxian analysis of the reigning liberal Protestant ethos. The liberal ethos, according to James, recommends two ultimately irreconcilable character ideals simultaneously, social righteousness and the systematic pursuit of healthy-mindedness. The first ideal, social righteousness, is the willingness to commit oneself to reducing the amount of suffering in the world and confronting injustice and evil wherever they are encountered. The second ideal is the systematic pursuit of healthy-mindedness, which James identifies with, among other things, the contempt for doubt, fear, worry, and all nervously precautionary states of mind, which, for more complex psychological constitutions, represents, in James's opinion, a shallow dodge or mean evasion. This is a dubious ideal from James's perspective, one he associates with the naively optimistic muscular worldview that one contemporary philosopher has described as YMCA Christianity. What is most ingenious about James's playing of the two character ideals against each other is his claim that the pursuit of systematic healthy-mindedness 
effectively nullifies the possibility of full commitment to social righteousness. For James, the commitment to protecting the state of healthy-mindedness, especially its benighted sense of optimism and its pretensions to self-sufficiency, serves to censor out awareness of the very suffering, injustice, and evil that the progressive educated classes have promised to confront. You cannot, in other words, commit your life to reducing suffering in the world if, in order to protect your own sense of well-being, you avert your eyes from the reality of suffering. In the final analysis, James concludes that it is in opening the self to the transformative power of religious experience, especially to the process of conversion, sudden or gradual, as he puts it, and to ascetic practices, and to compassionate identification with the suffering of others, that his readers may come to live out what they now only espouse. James's argument is cogent enough, it seems to me, but rather than engage in intellectual arm twisting, as it were, James concludes with an invitation, the very invitation Dorothy Day found so congenial. James writes, the great saints are immediate successes. The smaller ones are at least heralds and harbingers, and they may be leavens also of a better mundane order. Let us be saints then, if we can, whether or not we succeed visibly and temporally. But in our Father's house are many mansions, and each of us must discover the kind of religion and the amount of saintship which best comports with what he believes to be his powers and feels to be his truest mission and vocation. When I argue for the centrality of extra-philosophical pastoral concerns in James's work, I wish to state this one more time, I do not mean to suggest that James's later formulation is somehow anti-philosophical. In fact, I entitled this lecture William James as Pastoral Philosopher because I'd like to find a way, or perhaps for now just an image, for reconciling pastoral and more properly theological readings of the varieties and other of James's writing. The image is drawn from James's earlier work, The Principles of Psychology, and I think it suggests a kind of complementarity between James's philosophical and pastoral concerns. When simultaneous red and green light make us see yellow, James notes, when three notes of the scale make us hear a chord, it is not because the sensations of red and green and of each of the three notes combine. Rather, James suggests, something altogether new is created, so we actually experience the matter differently. With this image in mind, especially the image of the musical notes and chords, let me offer a little advice to academic philosophers and theologians reading James, keeping in mind the extra-philosophical strategies and arguments I just listed for you a moment ago. I know I risk impertinence in doing so, but frankly, given what has been written about James and his work by those now carrying the mantle of Timothy Leary, directness is called for. Feel free to remove this single note, the note of philosophical analysis. Feel free to examine it. Hold it up to the light. If you'd like, compare it with other notes composed by others. Play it, record it, measure it, graph it, if that's what it takes. But when you're done, please put it back where you found it. Put it back with the other notes. 
Otherwise, you will eventually come to confuse your single note with the entire symphony, having never really heard the music. Nicholas Lash, a respected theologian from Cambridge University and a founding member of the Obtuse Triangle, is a case in point. On the basis of his own tone-deaf reading of the varieties, he suggests that James's writing exerts its toxic influence not only on the credulous reader, but it would appear on world history. Speaking of the varieties of religious experience, Lash says the following. By banishing the institutional and the intellectual orders to the wasteland of the impersonal, both politics and theory are re reduced to matters of mere mechanism or technique, unconstrained by considerations of personal responsibility. By seeking for sense and safety in the wrong direction, at some center of our individual privacy, rather than in the public realm of common action, common understanding, and shared experience, we merely succeed in bringing nearer the day when darkness and destruction have the last word. Lash and his cohorts pass such judgments on James's writing routinely and time and again. That single note they play is accompanied by a lyric, a lyric best summarized in Lash's stunning claim that James's vision is unconstrained by considerations of personal responsibility. A conclusion so out of line with other readings of the varieties and frankly with the text itself that it defies easy characterization. There are philosophers, by the way, some pretty good ones, who have heard a very different message from James, not unlike the one Dorothy Day found within the pages of the varieties when she accepted James's invitation to embrace a life of voluntary poverty. Ludwig Wittgenstein is one. Wittgenstein reported to his friend, Bertrand Russell, much to Russell's dismay, whenever I have time now, I read James's varieties of religious experience. This book does me a lot of good. I don't mean to say that I will be a saint soon, but I am not sure that it does not improve me a little in a way in which I would like to improve very much. Miguel de Unamuno, the great Spanish philosopher and author of The Tragic Sense of Life, also took James's notion of saintliness to heart, having sought James's pastoral counsel after the tragic death of his young son. And there are other examples. First of all, there are those cranks on whom James was said to have squandered his time, those young students and others who both read his works and sought his counsel. Who are they? What kinds of lives did they lead? Above all, is there any evidence that they lived lives unconstrained by considerations of personal responsibility? W.E.B. Du Bois, James's lifelong friend and former student and the first African-American to receive a doctorate from Harvard, was an ardent champion for racial equality and author of the now classic The Souls of Black Folk. As a student, Du Bois once accompanied James on a trip across town to visit Helen Keller, who was, it turns out, also taken by James's writing, having first heard his words read by her tutor, John Macy. Keller was also the recipient of an early pastoral visit from William James. When I was a little girl, Keller reports, he brought me a beautiful ostrich feather, saying it was soft and caressing. Then there is Walter Lippmann, the great journalist, activist, and founding editor of the New Republic. And what about Gertrude Stein? Talk about an outsider, talk about a crank. As an undergraduate in the throes of a deep depression, Stein attended a public lecture by James entitled, Is Life Worth Living? Stein answered that question with the following words from her journal. Yes, a thousand times yes, 
when the world still holds such spirits as Professor James. Latter-day cranks, influenced by James only or mainly through his writing, include Bill Wilson, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, who gives James posthumous credit for founding AA. So essential to his own vision for recovery was James's account of conversion experience. And Jane Addams, social activist and founder of Hull House in Chicago, who praised James's moral equivalent to war as heroic and yet compatible with our spiritual natures. Others, inspired by James's moral equivalent of war and similar calls to social responsibility, include H.G. Wells, Rufus Jones, Harry Emerson Fosdick, Lewis Mumford, Bertrand Russell, Van Wyck Brooks, and Theodore Roosevelt. To return for a moment to the subject of James's pastoral sensibilities, it is important to note, especially given the often disdainful and disparaging tone adopted by the philosophers of the obtuse triangle, that during his lifetime, even his most ardent philosophical adversaries often spoke admiringly of James himself and the impact he had on their own lives. Josiah Royce, whose notion of the absolute James loved to hate, had this surprising response to those critics who said James wasted time and resources on so-called cranks. Sometimes critical people have expressed this by saying that James has always been too fond of cranks and that the cranks have loved him. Well, I am one of James's cranks. He was good to me and I love him. George Santayana, James' student and colleague who once characterized the varieties of religious experience as intellectual slumming, nonetheless provides a compelling picture of William James as teacher and mentor. Santayana writes, in the midst of this routine of the classroom, the spirit would sometimes come upon him and leaning his head on his hand, he would let fall golden words, picturesque, fresh from the heart, full of knowledge of good and evil. Incidentally, there would crop up some humorous characterization, some candid confession of doubt or of instinctive preference, some pungent scrap of learning, radicalism plunging sometimes into the subsoil of all human philosophies, and on occasion, thoughts of simple wisdom and willful piety, the most unfeigned and manly anybody ever had. Santiana's words resonate with many Latter-day Jamesian cranks, including me, who here echoed in his anecdotal sketch something of what we have encountered in reading James's books and essays. Let me cite Wittgenstein again in this context. In, conversa in conversation with a friend who told Wittgenstein that he liked reading William James because he was so personable, Wittgenstein replied, that is what makes him a good philosopher. He was a real human being. In closing, I'd like to call your attention to a letter William James wrote to his brother Henry after some Jamesian cranks from this very neighborhood invited him to lecture at Columbia. In the letter, written in 1906, four years before his death and four years after the publication of the Varieties, James writes to Henry about the series of lectures he gave here and about his daily commutes north from 44th Street to 116th on the spanking new subway. What is perhaps most touching about the letter is James's uncharacteristic confession to his brother of just how pleased he is with the attention lavished on him here at Columbia. Forgoing, if only for a moment, his usual self-deprecating humor, James says this, I think it was the high tide of my existence 
so far as energizing and being recognized were concerned. I think these words of gratitude to the Columbia community from James, as well as praise for the number one train, which many of us will ride home this evening, provide a good place to end my comments on James and to invite your own. Thanks. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> Any questions, comments? There's one right there, okay. Uh, I, maybe I could just uh, prime the pump by saying something that I mean, you have to keep a lecture to a certain length and so forth, but there's a paradox I, I kept noticing among the philosophical readers of James that they would refuse to read him pastorally. In other words, if you bring in any kind of advice, then that kind of sullies the pure reading. On the other hand, the paradox, they draw pastoral conclusions on the basis of their philosophical reading. And uh, nasty ones sometimes, like the one you heard. And uh, I'm not quite sure how to frame that yet, but it seems paradoxical. Uh, and I think that is part of what provides the juice for me to have taken on this project. As long as you don't ask me what philosophy means, I'll tell you what pastoral means. Um, I, I, I meant by that, um, well, well, first of all, for people who are studying theology, we talk a lot about practical theology these days. And for some reason, I've just never liked the term. And I've had a sense that maybe we're a little ashamed because it doesn't sound very intellectual to speak of pastoral things like pastoral guidance and the pastor and so forth. Uh, so. I, I like the idea of pastoral, but also I'm, I'm a fan of Max Weber's as well as William James's, and he does use the term pastoral workers when he writes the Protestant work ethic as those folks who mediated between the dogmas uh, of Calvinism and the needs of the laity. I just think we need some way to describe a theorist like James who is taking the practical needs of the reader into account as he's attempting also to address the philosophical issues. Um, Bernard Lonergan, the, actually another favorite of mine, has a notion of a, a distinction between theoretical adequacy and pedagogical efficacy. And he says, some books are written so that you read them then apply them if they're coherent and convincing. Other books are meant to be read in such a way that they continually return you to your own self-consciousness and to your own subjectivity, and you're kind of examining yourself as you go along. I think both are present in James, but I think the notion of pedagogical or formative efficacy may be what's primed. And I think that's pastoral more than philosophical. But I think he's got the rest of it, too, is what I'm attempting to say. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that uh, people who write books 
to address others as if the way to connect to them is through the intellect. Right. And overlook or, or minimize the fact that we are emotional creatures and creatures of will. We make choices. And will, yeah. And, and we don't just think. Uh, and uh, I like the stress that you made in, in James's being a human being and addressing people as human beings, as persons, and not just as other academicians. I wonder if you could comment on the relationship of emotion and will in relationship. Absolutely. Another th I mentioned those three criteria, immediate luminousness, moral helpfulness, and philosophical reasonableness. And I mean, I didn't mention them, I wrote about them. Um, all of those for him are, th are thought, or to be taken seriously by thought. There's a, well, I think James is worried about inhibitions to faith. Let's just start there. He, many philosophers judge truth in terms of what is espoused. I think James senses that what we espouse and how we live are not precisely the same thing. So he's looking at inhibitions. And I, he, thinks that, he does think intellectual inhibitions are essential, especially to some people. Um, you know, I've taught for years, and uh, we do the philosophers and people, and, and science, and, and the, you know, this is what Dawkins is all about in these books. There are intellectual inhibitions to belief. Of course there are. But right. This is the, the battle with Nietzsche. There are also these kinds of questions that aren't quite intellectual, although they have a, an intellectual component. Does religion lead to weakness, to pathology, to immaturity? Now, that's intellectual, but it's a different grammar of motives. It deals with the unconscious and semi-conscious and peripheral vision and with the emotions. Um, we may be repulsed by something before we know why. We don't know why first and then go, you know, I think I'll be repulsed. Uh, and, and, but he's not downplaying the intellectual either, I think. And the immediate luminousness, again, is, is somewhat emotional. But I really think a lot of folks, the philosophers and, and some good ones, including uh, Professor Proudfoot here, have made some strong criticisms of James that, that I think are valid about when he tries to say that mystical experience proves belief. He does try that, and that fails. At his better moments, he's saying what Kim read, that, no, it's more like music appreciation. Don't block it out. I mean, could, can, you, can you read poetry without including emotion? Can you hear a music without? So how can you possibly think that we can deal with a religion simply by looking at what warrants it evidentially and intellectually? Is that... Yeah. Are there people working today who you would call pastoral philosophers? Like, um, I, I know uh, my uh, uh, colleague and mentor, uh, I studied with him a long time ago, beginning in the 70s, Jim Fowler, who at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, he was attempting in his later work to take his own psychology of religion and form a practical theology from it. Uh, he, he, he kind of gave up the 
project. But I, I, I think that he represents that notion of a pastoral philosopher. And one characteristic of it is, I think, is knowing that good writing is not just something that illustrates ideas, but that is the meaning. And he writes well, and he crafts, and he took his time, and um, which put a lot of pressure on his students. You could, didn't just have to identify the ideas and communicate them, but you, you had to take care of writing uh, as well. So I think Jim Fowler is an example. But from, I mean, I think Kierkegaard is like that. I think Pascal. I think Simone Weil, who I already mentioned, although you know a little neurotic, but uh, I think she definitely is that kind of a writer. Um, I think this is the, the trouble with pastoral, you know, pastoral theology sometimes is um, regarded as not up to snuff relative to systematic theology and so forth. But if you're doing pastoral theology, you've got to do the philosophy too. I, I'll go back to something I said. I think I agree with James that there are inhibitions that are purely intellectual. There are inhibitions about empowerment. There are in inhibitions about what he would call the paralysis of the capacity to even f experience religion, you know. Uh, I think all of those things, uh, um, but psychology can be just as, well, let me give an example. There are psychologists that re reduce James's philosophy to his personal history. I don't want to go there either, um, who are, I wrote a review of one such book, um, forgetting his name, but I said, I tried to be nice, I said he was innocent of philosophy. Um, and he was. He couldn't, he couldn't parse a philosophical argument that he didn't think that was just a product of his relationship with his father, basically, in a certain sense. So I think for the pastoral philosopher, this is just coming to mind, maybe there's really no place to rest. You, you just gotta keep engaging where you see the inhibitions. Perhaps. Yeah. I would just follow up that question. Um, uh, to what extent do you see a more, um, a more modern um, philosopher like a Richard Wardick taking on that pastoral sense? Because it doesn't seem to me that he spends a lot of time in a, in a very spiritual sense taking no. on a Jamesian. I mean, he's lacking interest in, in religion, in the psychological in that sense. Um, but to what extent does he take on a pastoral sense of trying to give advice to, to people about sort of how to go around living with the world around you philosophically? Do you think that there's, a, you think that there's something in that that you would consider pastoral or it's so far from spiritual that, that it doesn't even... I think it's a liberal, secular, somewhat pastoral. When he, That essay, I'm forgetting, it's in, what's the book, Solidarity and the Collection of Essays? You remember? Yes. This the essay on Freud and Nietzsche. And when he says that Freud, um, not popularizes, but um, makes the Nietzschean insight, which was an elite insight, possible for all of us to rewrite our narratives, I think is what he says. I think that's pastoral. But he's also saying uh, when the subject what is it? Anyone know the quote? When the subject turns to religion, 
I turn away, or he, and, and he doesn't actually ever justify his dismissal of religion. He just dismisses it. Uh, maybe that's wise, I, I, not to try to justify it. But I do think it's kind of a secular, liberal, pastoral, and I think it is rooted in a community of, of, of like-minded, liberal, I don't know. Uh, any comment on that? Because I know. Okay. Well, I'm sorry that, that you. Um, it seems to me that one philosopher is doing something like this is Charles Taylor, in spite of his mistake on Jane. I love Taylor. Yeah. Oh no, I love Taylor. Uh, it, that's uh, it's one of those odd things, yeah. you know, when someone you like hurts someone you like. You know, I, I would say hurt because you know I'm a James Ian Crank, so I can say that. Um, but he, okay, I'm still doing this research, I need to be careful, but Lash and he are close. There's an Anglo kind of connection there from you know, Canada to, they're both Catholic, they're both communitarian, although everyone, no, one, no communitarians want to accept the, that title. Um, but he accepts Lash's characterization, or caricature really, of James, I hardly blame him. I mean, we have to trust each other in terms of scholarship to some extent, but it was the wrong place to trust Lash. Lash has some kind of an issue with James that I, um, let me just say what that argument is. He takes the notion of pure experience from radical empiricism, a philosophical work, which has nothing to do with mystical experience, collapses the two, and then accuses James of Cartesian dualism, uh, then draws conclusions from that, which are just incredible, uh, even if it were true, and it really isn't. Um, and Lash and Stanley Harawas, the third member of the obtuse triangle, um, both take Lash's caricature as fact and build on it. It's distressing. I, but I, I, I'm reading uh, The Secular Mind right now, and I uh, read Sources of the Self very carefully, and I like him very much, which is all the more reason I went, he's your, I, to myself, he's your ally. Yeah, those three seem to be different. Yes. I, I probably should step back from that one, except just to say the one thing, that so many people, pastors, counselors, less so therapists perhaps, but, but look to kind of change what people espouse if we could only get everybody to agree with our enlightened... Um, oh, 
Thomas Merton, that quote I've used in my own writing. Um, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's going to be close. Um, if you want to know who I am, don't ask me this or that. Ask me what I am living my life for and ask me what I think is standing in the way of living my life the way I want to. I think that so much rhetoric and so much anger in our culture is all focused on what we espouse. Very little seems to be focused on what's standing in the way of actually living out what we espouse. And that's a, a very small thing, I think, but that's my, my little insight. Thank you. Yeah. It's a great thing. When you use the phrase pastoral, the term pastoral, it says to me, you're addressing the whole person, mm -hmm. not just their real life. The whole person, how they feel, what their choices are, what's important to them, the mercy. That's the idea. Yeah, that's the idea. Thank you. Yes, there were four. <laughs> <laughs> this has been uh, surprising and delightful and uh, wonderful explication. We thank you. And I'm sure you may have some uh, customers for your book when it comes out. Um, Thank you all for coming. I just want to say a word. We, uh, we have been kind of tracking all of you who like to come to these lectures, and we'd love to have you here, and we hope you'll come back next fall when we begin with a new series. We would also really love it if you could become a member at some level of the Friends of the Burke Library and of the Columbia Libraries. And to that um, on that cause, there is information on the back table that I beg you to take along and read over. And to answer a question that I have heard, uh, how can I be sure that any contribution I make as a friend of the Columbia Libraries will flow to the Burke Library? And we are here to say that you can designate your contribution and say, I want it to go to the Friends of the Burke Library. And we have some needs here that uh, you can help us to stand ready to meet. And we would very much appreciate it. Uh, we like to be hospitable. We love to have uh, company and to have ideas to bat around together. But we would really, really love it if we could see your name on the list of members who contribute. So I would, I would urge you to consider that as you leave and be sure to uh, take the brochure with you and you can fill it out and send it in. I don't know if we can do this online or not. Uh, is that possible, John? Uh, you might want to go to the website. And there are some benefits and pluses to you um, in terms of your access to information, the wonderful world of information, not just here at the Burke, but at all the libraries, the Columbia libraries, that um, you can become closer to and, and have access to. So with that in mind, may I bid you a pleasant spring evening and hope we'll see you back here in the fall. Good night.
Thank you. 
forgot to turn off the recorder, so it's been going. That's okay. There we go.